in a world <laughs> where two people make a special announcement 15 minutes in to the actual interview. Minds will be blown. Theories will be tested. Worlds will be changed forever. On today's episode, we have Bill. Bill was actually one of our very first podcast guests when we were trying to do some interviews over Skype, and uh, you've never heard any of them, dear audience, because the audio was so terrible, Um, but we, when we just went home to the U.S., we got to interview Bill in person, and it was a glorious time. Um, Bill is a dear old family friend. For those of you who have listened to my dad's episode, Kevin, I think he was episode seven, maybe six, um, my Bill is my was my dad's mime partner when my dad was a professional mime um or the, as they call it innovative mime theater because they don't just do miming um bill still does this today with the with the original troop name the quiet riot and um you know bill and my dad knew, have known each other forever bill is the best man at my dad's wedding and uh just one of my favorite people in the entire universe it's been such a wonderful thing to grow up with him as a as a huge influence in my life and we've always been uh we've always been environmental bros always always working together for the cause since i was a wee lass um yeah i really love him he's one of the most interesting people he has such a such a calming voice and calming presence he'll (laughs) you'll feel very relaxed listening to this episode as we talk about really intense stuff like uh climate crisis but this episode is so exciting because bill is here to talk about a bill a bill that will solve the climate crisis the climate solution and this i really want you guys to go onto our website or instagram because i'll be giving actual written instructions um but if you're just listening to this intro Let me just say from the start, the bill is called the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act of 2019, and we'll go into more detail throughout this episode, but we have a call to action for this episode. We want any U.S. citizens to find the D.C. number of your representative and your two senators, call them up at any time, and ask them, say, I am respectfully requesting you to co-sponsor H.R. 763. That is the number of the bill that is named the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act of 2019. So everyone, please do that. We talk in this episode about how even 10 calls in one day makes a huge difference that can really get a small, not, I mean, it can get any bill noticed. That can be a huge impact. That can be something that's getting more calls than any other issue in a given day. So people, you're individual action seriously makes a difference for stuff like this and this is something the bill's been working on for a long time now and it's finally going through congress and um yeah your your action means a lot so so do it (laughs) Uh, listen to this episode for more details or do that right now because you trust us and know it's a good thing to do and go to our instagram and website for more details on numbers and the script so it's fair to say in this episode, you're getting two bills for the price of one. Totally. 
It doesn't sound like a good deal. Bill, you're getting bills. That's a negative connotation. Nobody wants bills. What about them dollar bills? Oh, I guess so. Man, bills means a lot of things. It does. Duck bills? Yes. That's it. <laughs> That's the end of the list. Bill of rights. <laughs> One could call Bill the Bill of rights. Nice. We we talk about a lot of things in this episode. I'd say the first 45 minutes are... All right, well, okay. First 15 minutes are kind of about our lives in Thailand and cultural customs. Then we make a special question slash announcement. Then we really get into Bill's um, climate climate bill um, for for the next half hour or so. Or otherwise known as Bill's bill. Bill's bill. Um, and then the the regular questions that we asked went a lot of interesting places. Um, we he tells some great stories about problem solving skills or problem solving methods in different communities uh, in the Quaker Church and. Um, in was it an African village, in a in a village community, uh, he said it's the best problem method solving problem solving method he's ever heard of, and it's a really great story. That's towards the end. Um, yeah, we go a lot of interesting places. What does the expression "doesn't fit the bill" mean? It doesn't like go within the parameters. I think it means. Why does "bill" mean parameters? Bill apparently means everything. That's what we've learned here in this intro. Philly should replace John with Bill. Seriously. I wouldn't make our lives any more confusing being that it's your father's name and my second father who we have today on this interview. It would be confusing after the end of a meal at a restaurant. Yeah. Oh, let's say uh, Bill's so important to me that I took my second, the second date that I took Trevor on. Was to meet Bill. <laughs> True. And, and it was our first time dancing together. And then we knew. Right? <laughs> we did. We talk about the importance of individual action. One of our very favorite themes. Um, Bill asks the question, did Trevor make me more of an animal lover? To which I go on a, a semi-outraged speech. <laughs> and spoiler alert. My answer was, no way. Do love the spoiler alerts. I do. This Our audience will no longer be waiting with bated breath to hear the answer. Well, they're waiting for bated breath for what happens at 15 minutes into the interview. So we've already bated their breath enough. They can know that I loved animals before I loved Chewy. Chewy, don't listen to her. <laughs> Chewy, Chewy thinks that's unfaithful to him. Chewy believes in monogamy. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Based on his actions yesterday. And with that. <laughs> <laughs> and without further ado. So do your thing, babe. Oh, oh, updates from last week's very important Julia Child introduction. We followed up Beef. that by uh, finding an online supplier of uh, pasteurized beef. And tonight Trevor's going to make... Beef boogie, yo! <laughs> The beef, put the beef in the boogie, yo. You beef boogie, yo. I don't think that will make for quite as beautiful pictures as Trevor bakes bread. We also had a pizza party last night, and Trevor baked all the pizza, and it was a glorious time had by all. It was. Hopefully, we have new, some new podcast listeners from our pizza party. <laughs> Hi, guys. 
So don't forget to shop with that Amazon code at the top right of OccasionallyInteresting.com, where a portion of your proceeds will go to funding this awesome podcast. And without further ado, Bill, the <laughs> purveyor of bills. Jen and Trevor, this is uh, a question I had in your time in Thailand. What did what did you find was your uh, most mysterious cultural aspect of Thailand? One that was either hardest to understand or uh, most challenging to integrate, to connect with. I feel like a lot of our time in Thailand has more made us reflect on our Western culture and question why things are the way that they are in the West. I think uh, the thing that immediately jumps out to me that wasn't hard to integrate, but is uh, the culture of respect and safety that nobody steals or tries to get up on one another. I mean, I'm sure there's some amount of it, but for the most part, uh, people just leave their belongings on top of their motorbikes and walk away from them and, you know, go to work or go to the mall or whatever the situation may be. And uh, and there's never any problems. And the, the, that's crazy. We don't have anything like that here. If you left something out, it'd be gone. <laughs> like, there's not a culture of anonymous respect and how that is just a, a self fulfilling thing in thailand and here like respect begets respect um but yeah that certainly wasn't hard to integrate and also another one that wasn't hard to integrate that i really like is taking your shoes off before entering a building and and now it just feels crazy not to do that it feels these were public buildings public buildings private buildings yeah you take you take your shoes off you don't you don't bring in the dirty outside and disrespect the the floors in the establishment you know yeah did most people wear flip-flops or something easy to slip in and out of yes definitely we don't but most people do trevor does anything strike you i kind of answered the opposite of bill's question but it's what it made me think of uh i think like uh i don't know how might spread it as culturally, but the monks not being able to sit next to women or touch women, uh, which really plays out more when you have to sit next to someone. You know, on the way home from Pai to Chiang Mai last time, Jen got in the Song Tao with open air truck and sat next to one. They're like, no, she's like, no, it's okay. Like, you can still sit there. And he's like, no, I can't sit there. Like, I was like, Jen, you have to go to the other side. I didn't know that was happening until you just were saying that right now. Oh, you never realized what was going on? No. <laughs> now, it, now it makes sense upon reflection. I did know factually that monks weren't allowed to sit next to women, but in the context, I don't think about it because they're all generally very friendly, warm oh, yeah, men, totally. and uh, and they were, you know, so sweet and and conversational, and they were playing with Chewy. A monk fed Chewy some of his ice cream cone on this. It was like it would have been the perfect, the perfect picture. Photo op of and all I time, missed it. But we were too in the moment. So, um, yeah. 
Yeah, that's funny. You know, I, I did not realize that <clears throat> until you're saying it right this moment a month later. <laughs> <laughs> so in the Swedish culture, uh, mothers would leave on a sunny day, their mothers would leave their babies in a perambulator outside a store. Yeah, our friends were and, just telling us about this yeah. the other day, but go on. And uh, that uh, one time there was a kidnapping and the whole country turned their focus to that and uh, it was like a, a sac uh, sacrilegious yeah. uh, betrayal of the culture. Totally. So I was astounded and um, I was glad to be in that culture that had so much trust. At the University of Virginia when I first uh, started going to school there, they had an honor code that said, uh, we, uh, we do not lie, cheat, nor steal, nor tolerate anyone who does. And uh, you signed all your work with that. And you could also leave, forget things of value down at the corner where the stores were and uh, the clubs and whatnot. And it would be there when you got back. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I've left my phone in public places on multiple occasions. I've never been a problem. I've left it for like by accident for up to two hours at a time. Trevor's left the keys in our motorbike multiple times for hours, and either they're still there when we get back, or Thai people come running after us, being like, "Excuse me, you forgot your keys!" Like, and so yeah, <laughs> it's it's amazing. Yeah, that's wonderful. It, it's even more miraculous when you think about. You know, it's an iPhone that's going to be worth, you know, we traded in, I think, for over $200. And you consider the exchange rate of what that money would mean to just take this one small thing sitting on a desk that's un, unattended and how easy it would be. And it still is just. It's just not, not even like a thought process. I also think this might be unique to Northern Thailand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where We've never been to Southern Thailand. We hear it's a pretty different culture. Yeah. So Bangkok. That's this. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a, a big, big city. And uh, yeah. oftentimes uh, when a society grows beyond. I mean, we're talking uh, about a lot of these experiences have been in Chiang Mai, which is in the second biggest city in Thailand, but it's in the north and it's uh, a Buddhist culture. And yeah, I don't know all the other reasons why there's such a cultural difference between the north and south, but we definitely have heard that. How did you come to pick that spot? Well, we live? actually we live in Pai, which is a small town north of Chiang Mai. But Chiang Mai is the big city that we that's kind of our second home. Um, and well, originally Ryan, my brother, he he went there a couple years ago and told me about it. Said it was a city that was basically made for me. That he'd never been to a place that was more like me. Uh, just a lot of nature and happy hippies and uh art and music uh so yeah that recommendation from my brother who who you know and he doesn't you know think about me too often so for it to really ring true that like oh my sister would like this that was a pretty big deal so we weren't thinking we were going to live there but we just we went to check it out and then fell in love and been there ever since that's a wonderful Way to pick a place <laughs> on the recommendation of uh, an intimate that knows you. I was surprised. So what percentage of, you say, pie 
P-A-I. What percentage is Thai and what percentage are uh, um, Dharma bums? <laughs> it definitely uh, seems to fluctuate a bit with the seasons. But I like that term. Yeah, I like that term. It's very appropriate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have historically been saying it seems like it's kind of split into thirds of Thai people long-term permanent or long-term Westerners, and then backpackers or traveling short-term people. Yeah. So do you qualify for long-term yeah, Westerners at definitely. this point? Yeah. yeah, the average tourist, I think, is only there for either a weekend or a week. Maybe a week, yeah. Right. And then there's medium and long-term, but they're, they're fewer and far between. Yeah, it's not a place where a lot of people... St- or I mean, at least not a lot. A lot of people who are our age are staying long term. Definitely more. There's there's people who are a lot of retired people or people with families. Um, but yeah, not too many very long term people in our. But then a lot of travelers group. like us go there expecting to spend a week or a weekend, and then wind up three months later like oh, I got stuck in the pie hole. They call it. <laughs> yeah. That's good. funny. How is the relationship between the long-term Thais and the long-term Westerners? Uh, a lot of them are married. <laughs> That's seems, interesting. Yeah. Seems pretty, yeah, I think almost all the long-term Westerners who are like very long-term. I mean, not all. We've met. We've met some. There are some, some that are not. But it, it's a lot easier are, if you're married. You're not allowed to own the majority share in a business or property. Or property if you aren't Thai. So a lot of times you'll have people marry for purposes of easing that whole process. That's um, interesting. Yeah, it, it's a big yeah. thing to to. I mean, we hear that there's these like Thai game shows, essentially of <laughs> where I, I don't know if game shows the right word, but but where where it's a contest to be like the the Thai girls who scored the best Western husband and like put them on a beauty pageant, and that you know in a lot of Asian cultures the idea is to find a Western husband so you can go back to their country. But in Thailand, it's about getting them to stay in Thailand. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, it is very yeah. interesting. Which I think might be slightly different than the whole business aspect. I think that there's this whole element of like tribal marriages that is actually becoming under attack from the Thai government where they're like, you can't do this anymore. This isn't, um, and like they'll have these ceremonies in like more remote villages of marrying. I'm not entirely sure how it works, but yeah, this is all like stories we've heard, not research we've done. Yeah. So, so they're trying to discourage Westerners marrying from Thai. I read one article that that spoke to that that didn't go too in depth, but it seems like the Thai government's starting to be like we're we're not a big fan of this whole operation. <laughs> That's um, interesting. Do any Western women marry Thai men that you've seen? Komla Kitchen is that that situation? There, we've met some who are in relationships but i don't think that we've necessarily met any who are married i'm trying to think through like everyone we know even peripherally yeah we've definitely heard of a a decent chunk of like people our age more who are are women who are dating thai guys but 
We haven't met that many. Yeah. Um, it is interesting to hear about the uh, the cultural differences of relationship expectations of behavior and how something we haven't really had to deal with. We just again hear, we hear this stories. anecdotally that um, there's a lot of influence from media and soap how relate yeah like soap opera kind of like like the telenovela of Thailand of how relationships should go and that's influenced sort of possessive crazy behavior on on stuff that would get you arrested in the US but but is considered a romantic gesture in Thailand really yeah on both sides for both genders I've I've heard about that in like India as well of like this this culture of you need to prove your love by going over the tap and and what could be considered like to the point of stalking here is oftentimes considered Ultimate romantic romance. or <laughs> but that it also creates a culture of that it, that it can lead to, to to not so great outcomes yeah. predatory behavior yes exactly oh, one thing that we just recently learned is that uh, women don't typically raise their own children, that the grandmothers raise the children. So women might have kids younger and then it's the grandmothers raising them, but that that's consistent throughout generations. So it's like you have the children and then you continue on with your adult life and then you raise your kids' children. That's interesting. Hmm. Also interesting that I'd say about 90% of the people that you interact with on a, like, a daily basis of the Thai people that you interact with on a daily basis are women. So like a lot of the shop, Keepers are women. Or restaurant workers. Restaurant workers are women. Anybody in the service industry. Um, which happens to be the people you interact with most. As right. a Westerner. So the men are off working and uh, We don't know where the men are. We're we, not keep, we keep being like, where are the men? And no one really seems to know. It's really, it's interesting. And we haven't gotten a great answer. Uh, you know, we've seen men working more like construction oriented jobs but we're also not sure if they're not burmese or or other that's a whole other thing yeah our town is right near the border of myanmar so there's a bunch of burmese refugees there are they like the guest the guest workers in germany from turkey Guest workers is that that's, the polite the, way of saying yeah. illegal <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah well the, they're, they're the guest semi-legal. workers are Sanctioned by the German oh. government, they I can stay only a six-month period, or mm-hmm. um, and they're usually from Turkey or wow. one of the uh, countries that uh, may be classed as third-world countries. Yeah, but I would think that the Myanmar folks are have been under duress from their government and would be thankful for work in a peaceful environment well before dinner tiny would you like to uh switch topics briefly sure let's switch topics <laughs> we, we had a question okay <laughs> will you will you marry us <laughs> <laughs> oh you mean we were wondering uh, if you would officiate our wedding next yes. summer oh that would be my honor yeah i would love to do that we would love to have you do that. Yeah. What a wonderful deal. Yay. Woo. <laughs> we're also getting married. Yeah. <laughs> Surprise. S- Spoiler sub- alert. Sub note, we're getting married. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time we're announcing on the podcast as well. So. Well, that's a wonderful thing. 
that will be uh, the season of Bonnie's and my 50th wedding anniversary. <gasps> oh, that's so exciting. And, um, what date? I will be in that time frame. I will have my 75th birthday. Wow. wow. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I did not know you. <laughs> 74. That's crazy, man. <laughs> <laughs> You're keeping it tight. <laughs> you look great. It's the goat gland extraction. <laughs> the, the, the coat gland. Goat goat gland. Oh. That was a uh-huh. uh, that was a a fad in the early 20th century. One of those uh, health coat gland will keep you young. Yeah, exactly, oh. and cure Working. cure whatever you have. Sort of like the. Uh, antecedent of snake oil and wow. uh, you know that kind of thing Goat but uh, well, man, that's a that'll be, be a banner year yeah, yeah. And your, your granddaughter will be a year old that's yeah, right all kinds of exciting stuff <laughs> yeah well that that would add great um great celebration to that year 2020 yeah it's a year that is full of hope a shift in the culture and a shift in our uh, climate solutions. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful thing to add to that year with your uh, marriage. We do. Me too. <laughs> Will you be in pie up until that time, do you think? TBD. To be determined. Right. I just I learned yesterday you. that my dad didn't know what TBD was, and I was like, I think I say that more than any other abbreviation. But anyway, yeah. So we will be planning from a very far distance. It also took us like two weeks to become reaccustomed to this time zone, so we want to give us enough time before the wedding to right. not be asleep on <laughs> on the yeah. date. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So will you return to Pi after getting married? Uh, we, I mean, I'm sure at some point, maybe not directly after though. We don't have, uh, we don't have all the details worked out, but but we've had it in our minds now that for a while that that it seems like we should probably go to Europe for a bit after we get married. <laughs> I don't remember how that exactly sort started, the, but uh, it's east-west balance. Yeah, there. totally. Yeah, that's great. Well, I just learned from my mom today that I might be able to get an Irish passport. So that's exciting. They've recently been changing the rules. So now Ryan and I are likely eligible to get our Irish citizenships and passports. So that's pretty awesome. Make Europe a lot easier. So how I will be ineligible, though. Yeah, so. marrying me doesn't get him anything to. <laughs> it gets like him lots of good things. One reason no. <laughs> I've been plotting this for so long <laughs> to get that <laughs> Irish passport. Keeping on track of the, Shattered the my Irish dreams, laws. Yeah. I'm sorry, Deva. <laughs> I appreciate that you're still willing to go through with it. So, is it your generation that has come into um, uh, eligibility for the passport, or can yeah, your parents it, also get? The, oh no, my parent, my dad already has his. Oh, yeah? yeah so yeah. he has dual citizenship. Yeah, for many years now. Yeah. So no I think kidding. that's part of the thing. Like your parents are, your parents already have to have dual citizenship in order to, for your, for the, their kids to be eligible. But previously, uh, like they just changed it. Like even five years ago, it was that your grandparents had to be from Ireland and my dad's were. So that means that your brother 
if this all happened I know, I a just year said, ago. I said that it's so devastating that this is just happening for Ryan because it was his biggest goal in life to become an extra on Game of Thrones and they have finished shooting the final season and he couldn't become an extra because you have to have EU citizenship in order to be an extra. He tried so hard. Poor guy. <laughs> That's funny. Yes. Well, but anyway, when is your uh, when is your 50th wedding anniversary? It will be April 4th. And I think that we are going to an island in the Caribbean and we're inviting our uh, various progeny and uh, and their kids in there. We hope that uh, Kai will be pregnant by that time. And uh, Quinn will be um, a year and a month old uh, at that time. And so uh, Brett and Alex and Quinn will come put their toes in the sand. And uh, with Quinn's case, very tiny toes (laughs) that will go in the sand. That we'll, sounds beautiful. We'll have to keep her safe from any surges of waves that uh, happen. And um, Kai and Jack, and hopefully uh, a bairn will uh, be along too. So it's uh, it's something to look forward to. And you have added to the uh, <laughs> the celebration of that year so what are your what are your main words of wisdom to uh some engaged folks after after almost 50 years of uh of beautiful marriage that i love the way you nurture your love it's 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 been a wonderful example to grow up with thank you thank you (laughs) (laughs) well i have uh, heard a piece of advice that has seemed to stand the weather of all the years and all the relationships that I know of, and that um, that if you have a certain amount of money to uh, put toward the relationship to make it uh, smoother and more harmonious, that if it comes down to therapy, or house cleaners, choose the house cleaners. <laughs> <laughs> it, it clears up a lot of problems. <laughs> some solid advice. That is some solid advice. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'll run into a couple that uh, who are exactly the same with regard to order, visual order, and dirt level. That they're they're exactly the same, and they are not uh, bothered by a difference of perspective from the other one. But probably ninety nine percent of the population, you're always going to have someone who is more or less on any particular category. And uh, I feel like uh, we're pretty evenly matched. Do you think so? Yes. No. Do you feel like this is a trap? <laughs> I feel like we're, we're probably a. Uh... Messy in, in different ways. But. I think we're messy in different ways. I think I like a cleaner kitchen. I don't, I don't know what you would like a cleaner <laughs> version of. Sure. I'm pretty clean. Yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, especially in Thailand, where if you leave, you know, a kernel of bread out, right. it will be. I certainly, 
I've spent a lot more time cleaning up ants. after you in the U.S. and you've spent a lot more time cleaning up after me in Thailand. This is true. It doesn't bother me necessarily. But also our lives, our lives are. I I think I don't know. I hope I think there's an understanding of of give and take and priorities. And if yes. one of us has a I'm a crazier crazier life, then yeah. we help the other pick up the rest of the life slack. You know. Right. I think that that's wonderful advice that if that was ever starting to cause resentment, it makes a whole heck of a lot more sense to spend money on a cleaning, helping cleaning than yeah. there. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Wise words. Yes. I think we might be getting the dinner bell. All right. We'll be back. To be <laughs> Stay continued. tuned for more. <laughs> We're back in business. All right. After that wonderful dinner. It was a fabulous banquet indeed many delights <laughs> um all right so definitely some things i want to talk to you about are the carbonville and art as a communication method to open minds and persuade hearts uh when it comes to things like climate change or other issues that you've found important throughout your life is there a particular order that you feel is more poetic to go in of those two general topics? Well, um, most on center in my mind right now, uh, David and I have a performance on Friday. And we are performing in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, at a Unitarian church. There are three citizens' climate lobby chapters, three out of the 500 in this country, who have come together and they are hosting this event. It's the chapters from York and Lancaster and Harrisburg. And this church is in Harrisburg, and we are performing a, about a 35-minute piece and we are performing this piece with uh, Dave as a sound effects man and uh, the orchestrator of the musical backdrop of the story. And it'll be a four billion year history of oil in 20 minutes. Wow. And after that history of oil, we will pose the uh, question, are we going to continue down this road using oil? And the answer, of course, is hell no. Mm -hmm. This is the year of the clean energy revolution, and that's the name of the piece of the story, our, um, or the program, I should say. It's called The Excitement of the Clean Energy Revolution. And I like how positive that is. Yes. And uh, we talk about the response to the warning that the IPCC has given us, the International Panel of Climate Change. And this is a body, of course, of 195 climate scientists who have to reach consensus on what they proclaim and they, in turn, are advised by a thousand 
climate scientists around the world. So it is a true consensus of many, many highly respected, peer-reviewed scientific findings. And so when they say, and they're usually conservative, they usually undershoot what our position is and what we need to do. So when they say, we have 12 years to reduce our carbon emissions by 40%, that's about the most specific warning that we have gotten and uh, needs to be taken very seriously. And that that uh, statement by the 3,300 economists, another large body of well-respected economic scientists, if you will, comes out with a consensus that the best way to take down the carbon emissions by 40% in 12 years is to put a rising price on carbon to send a signal to the citizens that carbon is getting more and more expensive and costly and dangerous and that low carbon choices are ever more attractive as the carbon grows more expensive. And because we have a president who has ignored the warning and ignored the solution, he has inspired a magnificent progressive response Mm -hmm. across the land. And that response is coming from Congress, who proclaims a Green New Deal that we will have 100% renewable energy making electricity, 100% of our electricity in 10 years. And it's encouraged a response from municipalities who are being enlisted by the Sierra Club and their coalition to pledge 100% renewable energy by 2035, community-wide in over 100 cities, which is a bold vision. And the response from the private sector is that these battery storage systems have reached such a low price and a high capacity that they have emboldened solar and wind to become our sources of electricity and will be viable because we can store the electricity when it's being made and use it when there's no sun or wind. So this is a huge change. And from the public sector, the 12 Midwestern states, the governors there say, we can build a solar array and a wind array for less money than we can run a coal plant. So that's huge news that coal has become that dysfunctional economically and solar and wind with storage have become 
much more dependable and the promise is huge. So these responses give us a opportunity worldwide that families and communities can generate their own electricity. We've never had an opportunity like this before in the human experience. It's a huge, unprecedented opportunity. And it calls to us to change our way of measuring success as a society in order to encourage this, that everybody on the earth has a shot at making their own electricity. We have to change the way we measure success. During the Depression, the GDP was invented, the gross domestic product. An economist came up with a way of measuring all the goods and services that were bought and sold in one year. And that became our measure of success. And it only asks one question. Can we make a profit at this? And when Bobby Kennedy was running for president, he said, the GDP measures everything except that which is important. Mm -hmm. And he meant by that that to ask one question, can we make a profit at this, produces a tomato that is bulletproof. This tomato can be shipped from west coast of the U.S. to the east coast U.S. and not receive a dent in it. It is a perfect traveling organism. But that's all it does. It has no dharma. This tomato doesn't taste right. It offers hardly any nutrition. So we can take a look at that tomato, that hothouse tomato genetically modified as an object of the economy. And it's the perfect metaphor for the GDP. It makes its way across the country in trucks powered by fossil fuels and makes the trip very admirable. But when it arrives, it offers no bliss. However, you have the ripe garden tomato that wouldn't be good traveling more than four blocks. <laughs> you have to hold it very gingerly for it's so delicate and it offers such succulent, nutritious bliss, this tomato. <laughs> and this tomato and its brother or sister tomato of the same ilk, they are perfect metaphors for people and the planet. So if you put these three tomatoes in dynamic equilibrium, instead of asking one question, can we make a, pro a profit at this, it encourages us to ask a question, can we, how much prosperity can we convert to the well-being of all at the least cost to the planet? And if we hold this 
equilibrium in our consciousness of people, planet, and profit, we step up to our full human potential in society. And the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, the bill that prices carbon and returns the money to the people, that bill launches us on that journey. And that is the excitement mm. of the clean energy revolution. It's beautiful. <laughs> Would you like to explain what that bill is? Yes. It's a carbon fee and dividend design. It's what the 3,300 economists were talking about to put a price on carbon right at the source where it's being pulled out of the ground. And of course, that cost will be passed down through the society, through the economy. So it's a systemic signal. It rises the price according to carbon intensity of every product and service in the in the uh, society. It starts low at $15 a ton, and therefore it's almost imperceptible the amount of increase in the cost of carbon products and services. But each year, $10 is added on, and the power of it is that that increasing carbon price as long as it keeps increasing, will give a signal to the builders and the investors of the economy who will no longer put their investment, their good money, into pipelines and other fossil fuel infrastructure. They'll see that if they do, their assets will be stranded. So... They choose, they will choose to put their assets into clean renewable energy and no and low carbon services and goods. Meanwhile, the people will receive all the money that's collected from the extraction companies and they'll receive it in equal shares, in monthly payments, even when this bill is about to be launched, they'll receive their first dividend a month before the bill is launched. So there is no out-of-pocket money spent on increased prices. It's a very compassionate structure, and it is fair to everyone. And the ones that have the lowest carbon footprint, either because they have a very humble lifestyle. They can't afford to buy a lot of fancy stuff like the second or third gas grill or the um, yacht or <laughs> a huge um, um, house that uses a lot of heat. They will be most advantaged because they'll get the biggest margin of uh, economic help each month from their carbon expenditure. Now, I would also imagine that it would help the economy in other ways as well, 
something that we talked about last podcast of like the money multiplier effect and those kind of benefits where you're in, it's you're injecting that extra money into the economy in a way that then bounces around a couple of times before it goes into a savings account. You know, I'll spend it a while, while then or a local convenience store and that local convenience store will spend that profit on something else and then something else and then something else. And we've seen it work very well in a lot of places by direct injection of capital like that. Um, the reason why I compare it to the universal income is I was recently reading an article, I believe about Finland. I'm not sure about the exact country, but it was they had piloted this program that I had read about and was interested to see how successful something like that could be. Right. And to find out that it was working very well was encouraging for me. And say, oh, this is Jen's parents think I'm a socialist, and that's a bad thing. So uh-huh. <laughs> I didn't want to get too deep into it out there. Uh-huh. You're, you're exactly right, Trevor. You're exactly right that it does. There's going to be something like eighty-two billion dollars collected the first year from the extraction companies, and all of that is going into local neighborhoods. It's going into community, and. That's exactly what's going to happen is that people with a little extra cash will spend it on services, local services, and health care, basically. And those fields will grow. It's projected to grow 2.1 million jobs in the next 10 years. So that's just from the carbon fee. But because the investment will move over toward low and no carbon solutions and energy, that will accelerate the growth of the clean energy economy. And that economy is labor intensive. So it will be lots of new jobs, three times that that the fossil fuel economy can provide. And it will be very, very encouraging to local communities that the um, food will become more local because uh, of the expense of traveling, you know, making food come all the way from Chile or Australia, New Zealand, or the West Coast. The locally grown food will be more nutritious, less genetically modified, and organic in some cases. And people can set up small gardens and and, uh, help their neighbors with uh, providing nutritious food. Under the fossil fuel scheme, there are food deserts in uh, urban settings particularly urban neighborhoods in low-income areas don't have access to nearby nutritious, healthy food within walking distance or even biking distance. So it promises to be a much kinder, more compassionate economy in the future for just that, that factor that you were pointing out. That would be nice to see. I've also heard uh, numerous other reasons as to why there are such dramatic food deserts, especially in inner cities and poorer areas that are difficult to overcome as well. Like the fact that they're often robbed. So it can often be a poor investment to invest in a 
a supermarket in a in a poor area. Uh, there's also a bunch of other reasons. I mean, if you're not going to sell the same type of quality of products in terms of organic, and you know, if you can go to KFC after working 60 hours a week and get enough calories to sustain you, I think there's it's one piece of a very larger puzzle that we need to start working on pretty pretty soon. It's not right soon. Yeah. yeah, like like yesterday. Yes, that's a very good point. I wonder what kind of um, pressure will be brought to bear on economies of scale like KFC has this sort of major distribution point and, and uh, has this mass, I imagine, mass-produced chicken mm-hmm. and uh, under those conditions and, and, of course, has to rely on uh, a lot of transport of goods from central distribution points to to the inner city. So uh, that transportation factor is not going to be as uh, convenient for economies of scale as it has been with a subsidized fossil fuel economy. That's what I always wonder. I mean, I know this was true years ago. I haven't been keeping up on it, but it seems like we subsidize other agricultural industries to promote those kinds of food usages. I don't know how that's evolved since the last time I was looking into it and reading books like Michael Pollan, Domino's Dilemma, but I know that back then at least, you know, five years ago, six, seven, eight, jeez. Domino's Dilemma was definitely when we were in high school. Ten years ago. That was a serious problem was... We have so much money in politics that we have these archaic versions of propping up systems that are really for the benefit of, of major corporations rather than like KFC and Purdue and all these other right. you know, trickles down to KFC. But um, well, That's what's so hopeful about the new Congress, the women who have won their races. There's 40 uh, progressive seats that are now in Congress uh, that weren't there before. And uh, the main thread of these new Congress women, particularly, is to serve the people and not the corporations. <laughs> as to what a uh, concept. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that they are coming out of... Uh, um, histories where their children have been uh, refused health care or, or uh, their neighborhoods have been uh, overlooked for um, corporate disadvantage where uh, the corporations are in uh, uh, making affluence in their their water systems and uh, their air quality, and because they're low income, they're in the worst situation. They, the uh, pollution can uh, be generated there with the least amount of resistance. So um, it's really important that that point of view is now in Congress, uh, in the Democratic Party. And uh, I have great hope for... Uh, the 2020 election to to augment that. What makes you think that 
even new blood will make much of a difference in Congress when you still have a finance system of campaigns that sort of inevitably enslaves you to those corporations, to use dramatic wording. Um, I was watching a, a story of four women who ran for Congress, and the one that won her race was uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and she was uh, she made a case of not taking any corporate money and uh, running on a, a fraction of what her, her um, opponent, a uh, 13-year incumbent, was running on. There are five states that have clean money elections. Uh, three of them are in uh, New England and uh, one is uh, in the upper Midwest, one is out west. And these five states, um, if you're running from anything from senator, U.S. senator down to dog catcher, <laughs> you can apply to the state with 500 signatures representing citizens who have each given you $10 apiece. And so you have $5,000 that you give to the state as an uh, indication and the signatures that the, the money comes from. Then the state then gives you a um, certain amount of money to run your campaign, much more than 5000 bucks, but a lot less than the corporate-sponsored politicians. However, because the ones that filed with 500 signatures and $5,000 can call themselves clean money candidates. The others cannot use that term, clean money. So by implication, the other guy is dirty money. Mm -hmm. And the clean money candidates win two-thirds of the elections because they are seen as more authentic and more trustworthy and intrinsically more interested in the citizenry. So that is very encouraging. And I would love to see the influence in this new Congress to encourage that kind of campaign finance reform in a much broader way than just 10% of the states. I like that very much. Thanks, Lindsay. So what is uh, some individual action that any of our listeners can take to further the carbon bill or any other progressive acts? There's one very effective action that anyone can take from their living room. Exciting. Find out the DC phone number, it can be found easily uh, on the web, of your representative and your two senators and call them up 
any time, day or night, will be recorded if you call after hours and ask them respectfully. Ask them. And it helps to start off with an appreciation of something they've done that you like. You can look at their website and see if there's any smattering, anything that you agree with, and you can appreciate them for that. So that softens them up when they hear them. And then you say, I am respectfully requesting you to co-sponsor HR for House of Representatives 763. And that number is the number of the bill that is named the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act of 2019. And that is the carbon pricing, carbon dividend bill that we've been talking about. We need co-sponsors on that bill. We've got about a third of the co-sponsors we need. We have about 35 co-sponsors. But to my amazement, only 2% of the bills introduced in Congress will make it through as a law. 2%? 2%. And so each bill that aspires to be a law needs support in the form of co-sponsors. The more Congress people that put their name to a bill, the better chance it has of surviving unscathed in the committee committees and also in the travel between the House and the Senate and the, the twin committee that meets at the final draw to, to get the um, language and concept straight between the House and the Senate. So it's a long and torturous and convoluted process. And the more support it has from inside the house, the better its chances. So now more than any time before, an American citizen from the strongest economic system in the world has more power to make change with one phone call than ever before. Because Many would say, and I agree with them, that the problem we are facing is an existential problem for the species. And it's on the line. Even though we have many nice days and everything seems okay, we don't know about the feedback cycles and how far along they are before they are irretrievable. So it's the time now, and the person listening to your podcast has that power because they are a constituent, and that's who the representatives and the senators will listen to. So call the D.C. line. I've always wondered that because when you look, they have the D.C. phone number and they have their hometown. Right. Yeah. Why the D.C.? Well, it's more direct, and the, the uh, secretary that takes 
the call will, in both cases, both the remote office or in-district office and the D.C. office will make a little check next to a bill and who's for it, who's against it, what they're asking for it. And that information is more direct in D.C., right to the representative and right to the legislative director. They're sitting right there and they can hear in the same day that so many people called in about this. A day or two might go by before they hear from the hinterlands, but if they're getting a press of calls in the D.C. office, then it becomes a thing. Mm -hmm. And people don't realize this, but sometimes 10 calls are considered a big volume of calls on a particular subject. So if we have 30 or 40 people calling in in a nice patch of time, you know, hey, we're getting uh, some uh, action here in the uh, district. People are interested in this. I think that's really important to mention because when you put it to those figures, it sounds a lot more like your voice is going to have an impact. It's like, well, if 10 people, I could be one of those 10 people. That's right. Rather than like one out of a million voting. So no excuses. You're one of those. Yeah. It means right now. Be one of those. Go, go call. <laughs> Pause the episode. And then shop on Amazon, Mike. Tell them, Trevor. <laughs> you tell them. <laughs> What is the most unrealistic thing you believe in? That's such a great adjective, unrealistic. I guess the cynics would say that the most unrealistic thing I believe in is the fact that the human being can advance and grow in maturity as a intelligent being on the planet, that we can grow to the point where we actually understand and live the fact that we are interconnected, that we are all one, that all is one. It seems from the news, if you listen to the news, That seems impossible. But I think it is possible in my lifetime, which is fairly short. I think it'll happen in the next 20 years. That's how I live, though. I just decide that I'm interconnected with everyone. I do that imperfectly. That was beautiful. <laughs> I wonder what your answer. Nice one would be. If there was one behavior or action you get everyone in the world to do or stop do what doing, what would it be? Did I mention making the phone call to the <laughs> <laughs> representative in Congress? That would be nice. Also, maybe it would be Nice to try on gratitude for each person 
to find one thing that they're grateful for and express gratitude for that thing, whether it's to someone else, to God, to the community. To, to that garden tomato. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, before you eat it, to uh, give thanks like the, like the Native Americans do. To give thanks for all the beings that went into the making this tomato possible mm-hmm. in its lusciousness. What is the most annoying thing about people? I like to take that question and say, what is the most annoying thing about myself? And I think I'm annoyed at my insecurity. I fall off my path sometimes and I begin comparing myself with other people. And that's such a foolish thing to do. But I find my ego directs me to do that sometimes before I catch it. It's a monkey. Before I bring it back under uh, surveillance. That's a silly thing to do. And it's annoying. (laughs) That's an awesome answer. (laughs) What is something that is really popular now, but in five years, everyone will look back on and be embarrassed by? You know, I thought that, uh, was it the skateboarders that uh, started wearing their pants around their knees? <laughs> I thought that would be uh, out, of, out of fashion five years ago, but it's still around. I still see it around. I think it's less frequent than it was. It's, it's on its way out. That, yeah. one, that one actually could be out in five years. Yeah. All right. it's, it's a realistic goal. Yeah. I'm concerned for the safety of those boys. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're on a moving platform. Yes, with their they, legs bound. That's right, at the knees. Yeah. And they've got these long chains, too, that uh, it just, what could go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very odd. It adds another element. Danger. Uh, yeah, danger. What is your favorite thing about yourself? I like that I'm learning about gratitude and practicing it each day. And I like that I can depend on myself. It's taken a while. (laughs) You got there just by practicing, asking yourself to show up, and then you kept on showing up more and more when you asked. Right, and uh, taking note when I didn't, how I felt about that. And uh, I love the big picture, so I am enamored of the causes that go with the big picture. And those causes, uh, they take some endurance. And I was a long-distance runner, so I know about endurance. But some of these tasks are longer than the the uh, cross-country courses I used to Sorry, run. Man. Sometimes I take a rest, but I like it that I get back in the game. It's pretty wild that you and I have been having some of the 
you know, basically same conversations for the majority of my lifetime. <laughs> Repetitive themes. I mean, not exactly, <laughs> you know, there wasn't this exact carbon bill, whatever, when we were talking about these same issues 15, 20 years ago, but that it's just been find a solution, believing in an individual action, cultivating gratitude and mindfulness, and hopefully the rest will follow. When you start cultivating gratitude and mindfulness, you become aware that you're all one, and then you can't help but benefit the world because it benefits yourself. I have always thought I was in league with you, Jen. <laughs> and you too, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the league. <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> I agree. I think one of the most troubling things, like trends that I've been seeing more online than anything else, is uh, a belief that individual action is not meaningful. I mean, this that's been around. It's been around, but I mean, but it's been sure. creeping in. I mean, especially with. Um, I think just the more aware we become of how small we as individuals are in the grand scope of everything, the more overwhelming. Well, it seems, I think it's been getting worse because of a number of things. Like one, the the current administration and their just bombardment of like horrendous thing after horrendous thing and it's just like nothing ever changes and nothing ever has been improving for quite some time that people are getting exasperated i think it's also when you look on things like reddit one of the ways that the russian bots have been infiltrating reddit is to go on to threads like politics or world news and say these kinds of storylines of well, nothing's going to change, even though that happened. You know, it's not like screw America. Or it's it's really more insidious than that of yeah. going on and being like, yeah, but it doesn't matter anyway. Still which is really interesting. That that's the tactic that they're using, right. which means that that's the thing that's going to be most effective against them and against the powers that be is individual action. It's not. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to wait for the top down to do it because it's really all those kind of meaningful change generally always has to come from the bottom up. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I agree. There's a guy that said that uh, the powers, the elite or the powers that be, would love you to think there's no point in uh, individual action. That. There's no point in uh, trying to make changes, that things will always be this way. And what that does is because it is uh, serving the, the powers that be, that cynicism winds up being obedience. I know in the uh, in the movement to rectify the climate, there are those that say that our individual action, like recycling or uh, um, cutting back on meat or eating vegan, driving uh, or taking mass transit and driving a high mileage car or electric car doesn't move the needle anymore because it's too late for that. 
that a broad systemic action is the only thing left for us to activate. I don't know whether that's true or not, but I look on these individual actions and practices as a spiritual practice that reminds us that these things, even if they don't move the needle, they are important. They're important for our soul, our practice of being human in the world. I absolutely agree. I think anytime you're living in line with the bigger picture, it's going to, you know, create top down and bottom up action in the bigger picture and within yourself. You're, you know, this example of the book I was just reading to Trevor yesterday of the difference of going to the farmer's market and chopping up vegetables with a couple of friends and eating, you know, your roasted root vegetables on a Saturday night and taking home leftovers and how that is, you know, putting money into your local economy, supporting farmers who you know what their practices are, having the time, conversation, connection, community with friends, spending less money, having more food and a delicious meal that's good for you, good for the planet versus the average American meal, which is eaten either in your car or in front of the TV and alone Mm. and is a food-like product, not real food. This is the average American meal, statistically speaking. It's crazy and how that's not giving you anything you need on Maslow's hierarchy. You're not getting, you know, you're not really getting security. You're not getting connection. You're not, you're not feeling a part of anything it's just a perpetuating system of misery and that's just one really simple action and essentially the same price or cheaper to have this thing that makes you feel amazing and keeps on giving in ways that you can't even comprehend versus you know buying some mcnuggets and sitting in your car at the drive through that's just really wild. Like that's how that's how simple it is. Go buy a potato with some friends, <laughs> versus go buy some fried potatoes in your car, and th- that little thing can change yourself and change the world, change your community, and it'll, it'll taste better. Go buy a different tomato. <laughs> potato. And, and pot- <laughs> tomatoes, potatoes. Buy local. Buy fresh. Yeah. yeah. Make Who friends. Who wouldn't want that? No, thank you. I'll buy far away and old. Yeah, and I'd prefer to be incredibly lonely while I do it. That's a good book. Can hear more about that later. <laughs> Sneaky promo. That's the book. Uh, next week we're interviewing my pal, mentor, inspiration, uh, Colin Beaven, aka No Impact Man, and oh, yeah. his most recent book is called How to Be Alive. It's a couple years old now. But we've been rereading it in anticipation of this interview, and uh, oh, wonderful. it's 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 a very great. I I like I like the way he goes between very seamlessly between like these very big picture ideas and then these small examples of like here's literally the recipe for like roasting some root vegetables at 450 degrees. <laughs> go have go make some dinner with your friends, <laughs> and that that type of thing of being like big picture. 
now here's the action that you can take right this second. Yeah. So it's nice. I, you guys, you guys would be friends. You should come to New York. Yeah. I saw um, No Impact Man. Or, um, the documentary. Yeah, it oh, was yeah. very compelling. At my behest, or or independently of me. Um. I can't remember but where you, I came you know across I it. Was for, with his uh, nonprofit for two years? Did you have CDs you were hang, or DVDs you were handing out? Oh, maybe. Because <laughs> I think I came across a DVD of his. Oh, nice. And um, um, it was very impressive, and I, I was in awe of his wife for going along with all of this, you <laughs> know. And, with a baby to take care of, and uh, yeah. um, I w- I hope that their relationship survived. <laughs> it did not. They divorced right after this project. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> oh man, what a price! I mean, I don't think it was the. Well, I feel bad. I will probably edit <laughs> this out. I don't want. But I don't. I I I think it's uh, off of the best. I don't think it. I I certainly. I don't think it was the price. They're very happy co-parents now, and uh, like, yeah. that's good. Yeah, I'm glad of it. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> it's really interesting, you know, to choose a life partner, and you have different visions, and when you bring a child in on it. Um, it's an interesting choice. Mm-hmm. Do you uh, do you put your emphasis on the relationship and the home for your child, or do you put the emphasis on your vision, which is both are very important. And so, choosing a mate is uh, is very. That's the biggest decision of one's life, is choosing a life mate. And there's no way you can predict, you know, downstream what uh, what uh, the your respective paths will be. The best you can do is to work on open open communication and tolerance and uh, an acceptance of. Uh, difference that's why the cleaning <laughs> service is uh, as good if not better than therapy <laughs> my father's uh i don't know relationship manifesto his his words of wisdom aren't quite as funny as yours but i think <laughs> equally wise that it says that it's not about you know you you growing into who I want you to be here. You going to meet my needs, but I'm I'm here as a support for you to grow into who you were always going to be, regardless of me or not. Essentially, just respecting the your partner's growth and path and being a support rather than a manipulator. I don't know. Right. So do you? Uh, it's interesting to take a person like No Impact Man who has uh, admirable values and an admirable mission and uh, and the mother and the wife 
has an admirable mission of trying her best to to make a home as she sees fit for the child. And uh, that would be a very interesting story to understand their uh, split and accommodation, subsequent accommodation with one another and for the child and for each other. Yeah. I'd love to hear that story. Well, maybe we'll uh, delve into his personal life on the next episode. I've never really closely asked him about it. He's just said like a couple uh, little comments here and there over the years. But uh, Yeah, it could be very helpful for uh, people in relationship to hear about that. Yeah. Is that a uh, nut grinder? Is my mom closing the shades in the next room? <laughs> I, was, I was also surprised by this noise. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Of, uh, it's pretty hard to imagine any direction of us like dramatically going away from. I don't know. <laughs> you never know. I mean, something like that can come up organically. Right. It's just like. This is a valid question, but I can't imagine. I think I, I'm very lucky that we share such similar ideals and value systems. Um, I can't personally really. Well, I guess. I guess it, I've I'd probably been with people who didn't have as well thought out value systems that we would kind of clash on things. But they were. I was always able to convince them to come over to my side eventually <laughs> in the end. Um, but I can't imagine like when like because I feel very strongly about things being with somebody who is like, say a social conservative. Uh, that way, like, I just can't yeah, imagine. Like, it was well, like, how would you ever bond in the first place? Yeah. And being able to like, and that's a pretty dramatic difference, you know, yeah. but I'm sure that there's all these smaller versions of that. You know, this should be more clean. And, I mean, I feel like you and I came, we met each other with just like different knowledge areas, but similar enough values. But then, you know, you've taught me tons of things where I've totally changed, not because I was like in opposition. It was just I either didn't know or, you know, I didn't. uh, It was, you know, you've informed me and I've grown with you and I'm sure with me too (laughs) absolutely (laughs) sure Sure. you've you've become more of an environmentalist since being with me absolutely would you say you're more of a animal lover because of trevor no No? (laughs) does trevor Uh, seem like more of an animal lover than me don't you if you remember me who who came up up with the uh the dog was yeah. was Trevor. That was a, That's what I'm a sneak attack surprise. <laughs> but like my earliest uh, mission in life was was being an animal lover. I mean, this is being I became uh, concerned with animal rights and factory farming when I was six. Wow. And that's when I started on this whole environmentalist campaign. Actually, there was I, somebody I, I had one earlier memory of being like oh i'm aware and concerned of the environment in kindergarten somebody told me that if you leave a room without turning off the lights it kills a penguin 
Oh. So <laughs> I got super freaked out. You heard it here first. Five, occasionally interesting. Yeah, no. Five years old. Five years real old. This is the, my, the, my first major memory of being like traumatized by me having an impact on something so far removed from me and believing that yeah. uh, my actions made a serious difference and wanting to conserve energy. And so, yeah, this was certainly my earliest memory of being like, oh my gosh, like I need to turn off the lights when I leave a room. Like I would never want to kill a penguin. And then, and then that leading to other thoughts and questions of like, you know, I probably shouldn't ever leave the water running. That might kill a penguin too. I, I don't know exactly how, but I, I think I should be conserving the resources that are obvious to me. And then, you know, my, my brother was also, was a really big animal lover and he started informing me about some of these, animal issues of it told me he brought me home a book on factory farming when i was Whoa. six and was like oh, look at, at look at what wow. happens to pigs and i was like wait wait what are you kidding me i had no idea to conceptualize that the food that your parents are feeding you that that's an animal that you play with at the at the petting zoo or something that that's that then i that died for me and now i'm eating it like that blew my mind i couldn't believe it and then let alone that i mean the concept of death is crazy enough than death for my own personal gain but then to learn on top of that that these animals were often sick and being hurt during their lives and then killed this was all just crazy and as soon as i learned all this i was like Okay, well, obviously I'm never eating meat again. Disclaimer, I eat meat now as an adult, but it's a complicated thing. But anyway, <laughs> just want to be transparent with my podcast listeners. It's an ongoing journey. Um, <laughs> but I was a very strict vegetarian for 11 years uh, until some of, some of these humane options became more readily available until I moved to Ithaca, where it's much more of an organic farming community, and I was able to meet the farmers and learn exactly what was happening. Um, but I still, I still don't eat much meat. But anyway uh anyway yeah i definitely feel like the thing that that brought me online and made me who i am and has jump-started everything that i care about today was is was learning that animals die for people's momentary pleasure and yeah so i think i'm a pretty big animal lover maybe not in the same way as a a fluffy puppy because i never had one before but certainly in the large concept i uh i've always very, very much loved animals. But yes, loving Chewy like a child is a different type of animal love. No. In conclusion, <laughs> maybe Trevor introduced me to a new type of animal love, but I don't think he was ever loved animals more than me. And also, I feel like having Chewy, he like loves Chewy more than any other animal now by a long shot. And I feel like loving Chewy has opened up my heart to other animals even more, where like I might not have touched every dog I saw before having my own but now every time i see a dog i'm like oh my heart is so open to all dogs now and trevor's kind of like a one dog man no he still loves other dogs but he's definitely i think trevor showing up with chewy was a fabulous strategic move yes he i i, I gave him the <laughs> key to my to apartment that day and he was like <laughs> <laughs> i got it <laughs> 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 Yes, Chewie's fairly hard to deny. <laughs> Certainly. Oh, yeah, we miss him we terribly miss him. right now. It's we like, long cry as we've ever been day. apart. Oh, God, it's, it's very hard. But how is he being uh, cared for at the moment? 
by our wonderful, caring, loving friends who have another dog who's who plays with him and he's in good hands, but we good. still miss him immensely. Yeah. How long have you been separated now? Like three and a half, three and a half weeks. I don't know, three weeks. Yeah. Coming to It'll be six weeks. Too. Being a dog, he'll probably recognize you when you get back. Yeah, we filmed him the last time because he gets very excited of me. And that was only two weeks' absence. So it'll be interesting to compare his two weeks' absence <laughs> and seeing us for the first time we, versus we left six him for weeks. six weeks over the Christmas. Uh, that's true. But... This feels this feels way harder because we're in all places where he's lived and, and oh, with all yeah. people who he he's knows. He's supposed so. to be here. Yeah, yeah. That's really right. Weird not to have him here. Something's missing yeah. in this picture. Yeah. Oh man, I, one of my favorite Chewy memories is when you came over for my dad's birthday, and unfortunately Trevor was working that night and didn't get to witness this. But I think Chewy, we'd had Chewy for just about a month. And we were at my dad's birthday party and Bill was telling a dramatic story where he made sound effects as a, as a motorcycle. And at this point, Chewie, Chewie was such a good puppy. He didn't bark basically at all until we brought him to Thailand. And uh, yeah, when we had had him for a month, I don't, had we even heard him bark at that point? I mean, like maybe, maybe once. I don't know. We were always trying to get him to bark because we wanted to. <laughs> We wanted to know what it was See, like. He was a real yeah. dog. And then, and then Bill started making motorcycle noises and Chewie was like so freaked out he started growling and like backing his butt up onto me to protect me and put himself between me and Bill <laughs> and growling and looking around being like how what is happening right now and and, and barked and uh, we were all like oh my gosh we didn't even know Chewie could make that noise it was <laughs> it was so cute and, and weird oh he was so fluffy Anyway. He, was, he was particularly exercised when the 14 Hells Angels made a turn into the Cloud Nine restaurant with a Doppler effect. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it was perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, you're considered a, a alternative lifetime career as a Foley artist. No, we only make sounds for quiet riot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Aptly named. Right. Anyway, in conclusion, I hope I think Trevor and I will grow together, <laughs> and it'll all be good. Balloons. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's a great possibility. That's our, one of our favorite things to quote is. Uh, Richard Bach's Bridge Across Forever. I'm mm, sure you, I'm sure you would love this book in general, but it, it starts fantastic. out with Trevor's favorite quote about the idea fairy, and it 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 ends. This is like a page long quote, and it ends with our joint favorite love quote about um when or you 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 found the right person when together your direction is up. Your your two balloons and I don't remember exactly how the quote goes. It's very poetic, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, essentially. I liked your, your kinesthetic <laughs> reference to yes. the two balloons going <laughs> up. Yeah, that's yeah, good. Well, what is your most embarrassing story before <laughs> age ten? Amazing segue. Well, yeah. Before age ten. Before, before age puberty, 10, just in, childhood young, embarrassment. 
I have an even more embarrassing story that happened to me in the last two weeks. All right, let's do it. All right. So I'm confiding in you, and uh, people on the podcast don't spread this around. <laughs> Every once in a while, when I'm driving late at night and on my way home, and I have to go to the bathroom, I decide that I probably won't make it all the way into the house. When I stop the car, record the mileage, undo my seatbelt, and get out of the car, that it'll be too far gone to expect my system to hold off all the way into the house. So I have this infrequent, note, infrequent ritual of going to my mulch pond and peeing in my mulch pond. And I reason that this gives the mulch pile some nitrogen. And it's in the dead of night. What could go wrong? There's a garage that's between me and the house and back. It's completely sequestered. And it's the dead of the night. Nobody's around. So there I was two weeks ago in my did I mention, infrequent (laughs) ritual of peeing into the mulch pond. And around the corner comes two headlights. (laughs) I hadn't reckoned on the driveway that loops around and sweeps across the beams, sweep (laughs) across the the mulch pile (laughs) before the car goes into the garage. And who should be in the car but my two neighbors very proper folks, a nurse and a IT specialist, and that's Bob and Chris. They're in the car. Now, I'm peeing there, minding my own business, and now I'm 20th Century Fox, searchlights, you know, sweep across me, so I don't wave, you know, uh, which would have been much better. Instead, I react to my compromised position and I turn my shoulder, and I decide, I've got to get out of this this light. So I start angling down the uh, side of the mulch pile, which was a disastrous route, because the mulch pile comes right down to the almost the garage wall. So I have this thin thing here. So I, I've got my pants hiked up with one hand, and I don't want them to fall down, and I'm I'm angling along like a, a a guy that's wounded, you know, along, and the lights are interminable. I'm sure they're only sweeping across and going into the garage, but it seems like you know, they're, they're <laughs> trained the on spot. Me. And I uh, finally make it to the far side of the garage. The lights are turned off on the vehicle, and Bob and and uh, Chris go into the their house and I'm around on the dark side of the garage and I think that was awkward <laughs> uh, and I noticed that I haven't seen much of them lately I went off to England for two weeks and I think well maybe they forgot about it you know but I say no that was a pretty dramatic moment <laughs> so my question is, do I come clean on it and I share what I'm 
sharing with you with Bob. I mean, what do you think they could be thinking that's any worse than the truth? <laughs> that I'm a prevert. Peeing <laughs> near their house. <laughs> Maybe writing my name on their garage wall. I don't know. <laughs> that was pretty embarrassing. Much more than anything I can think of or did ten or before. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Because what? I'm seventy four years old. I should know better. <laughs> well, no, I think that's that's very nice of you to be that considerate to your mulch pile and concerned for its nitrogen content. I appreciate We're that. We're all one. Frame. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think I think Bob and Chris would understand. Just start it out, just be like, Hey guys. We're all one here. <laughs> Let's shake hands. No, maybe not. <laughs> um, what is your least favorite thing about being a parent? Hmm. At the moment or in my life? Which which comes more to your fore mind forefront of well, your the, mind? You're newly a grandparent, so that's a whole new fun challenge. Yeah. Grandparents have it much easier than parents because it's finite, you know. You have the right to say, I have uh, expended myself here and I'm going to go rest. Uh But you can't do that as a parent without uh, completely betraying your mate. You have to check with them, but they're spent too. So... The least favorite time was the, I used to think it was the terrible twos, which is a misnomer because it stretches all the way to four years of age. Mm. And for those parents that have two children and they're two years apart, Mm. it's relentless. It goes on for eight years, you know, without relief. So, but that was nothing compared to the teenage years, which is a revisit of the terrible twos. Same dynamic going on. Bill has two daughters. Yeah. So um, one of my daughters was particularly truculent during her teenage years, specifically um, sophomore, junior in high school. And I felt like a failure as a parent because I could not find an even keel as to what I could do that was reasonable as far as providing guidance or borders or boundaries for uh, my daughter and uh, when to be laissez-faire or when to show tough love and it was just, uh, I just went on blind faith and failure for a couple of years. And uh, our relationship is fabulous these days, and it survived that time. And uh, my daughter realizes that it was tough. And I was probably tough on my parents, too, in those years. And so that was the hardest thing. Um, being a parent and I'm reminded of a story that my sister was told by a therapist 
a therapist, and I had this client. She was a, a girl that was very obstreperous. She was very hostile to her parents and hostile to her situation. And she was intractable. She came to see me several times at her parents' behest. And I finally had to admit to the parents that I had played every card I had with this girl. And I got nothing. I can't help her. Years went by, and I saw this girl, now a young woman, on the street. She came up to me. She looked me in the eyes. She was positive and cheerful. A smile was on her face, and she thanked me for uh, my work. And she was full of gratitude, and, and uh, we had this beautiful conversation. She turned to go, and I said, Wait. What did the trick with you? You were so strident as a teenager. What happened? What was it? Tell me. I turned 20. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, it was my parents. No matter how bad I was, they never gave up on me. There it was. So I think, you know, the parents lot with kids, they're going to hit some rough patches, and you just got to <laughs> knuckle through it. You got to, to uh, go through it. And Brett and Alex have gone through a hellish period with their infant. In her first weeks on the planet, she was screaming 10 hours a day, never really hardly got any sleep, and she was very hard to satisfy or to get to some point of comfort. She cried so hard and so piercing and seemingly so accusingly, and it made Brett cry, too, because her infant, her baby, was in such pain and so unhappy, no matter what they did in the way of bedding and shelter and food and love and diaper changing. But none of it seemed to help at times. And they just muscled through it. And now it is thankfully somewhat abated. And, uh, but that's the way of it with parenthood. There's some blissful times, and then there's just some times you say, this is my lot. Mm-hmm. I have to shoulder this and, uh, and bear it out, bear witness to the thankless role of a parent of a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> We were reading. Oh, oh we we had heard recently about a Scandinavian. Might have been Sweden or something like that. Where they we listened to a podcast. They like they they segregate the teenagers. 
She's like, all right, go all live with other teenagers because that's the only people that can stand you at that age. <laughs> I like, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it I does. It yeah. does make a lot of sense. Yeah. So do they sleep in the same shelter or uh, eat yeah. together? Yeah, I mean, that's that's like, yeah, like kind of communal living with maybe some sort of oversight, but yeah. like school type. All right. Um, whatever we were listening to, I didn't go too in depth into it, but I was just like, I was kind of struck by that idea as a concept. Of like, yeah. That might not be a terrible idea. Yeah. Sweden has a reputation for being a very open and tolerant society with regard to uh, their youth, and uh, they are the uh, kids are much more. Um, seemingly much more sexually free than uh, American kids that have a lot of angst around all that. American kids are... So America is one of the more puritanical Western nations, for sure. Yeah, it seems to be. This, uh, the recent programming of... Uh, Stories and movies on young young kids, notwithstanding, seems to seems to have a lot of sort of vestiges of the Victorian era left. I had the idea that if I was expecting to marry a virgin, that I should expect the same thing of myself. Ivani, the girl I fell in love with, said, that's a pretty stupid idea. <laughs> She's a wise lady. <laughs> Way ahead of What is the book that has most influenced your life? I think it was not a book, but a tape. Probably the most pirated tape that I've ever heard of. So many illegal copies of this tape were run off at full uh, permission by the originator of the tape. The person that made the tape was Miriam McGillis, who was a nun. She was a protege of Thomas Berry, who wrote The Dream of the Earth. And Thomas Berry was a cosmologist. He called himself a cultural historian. And it was his belief that the universe is the greatest spiritual expression. And the universe drives to life and complexity. And it has three tenets that that each expression of life is worthy of respect and has its own dignity. And diversity, diversity in the community of life is the source of wisdom and strength and that everything in the universe is interconnected the human family with one another, the human family with the other expressions of life on the earth, and the earth itself, and the earth with all the other 
celestial beings. It's all in interconnection, a dance of interdependence. And so Miriam McGillis talked about that in her tape. And I had just taken on a project of being the director of Pinocchio, a play that was being put on for children. And it was my first and only job as director. And I thought I should have all the answers myself. I was being independent. And here was a story of interdependence. And I wound up getting fired from that job because I couldn't solve all the problems. Had I some experience or some wisdom, some semblance of wisdom, I would have hired a dance captain for the choreography, turned more of the music part over to the pianist who wrote the score, and I would have concentrated on the story elements. But I thought I was the director and could solve everything. So... I was fired for the first time in my life, and it was devastating. I was really broken up about it. I asked my daughter, Kylan, at the time she was nine, I think. I said, Kylan, do you think I should go back in and fight, get my job back? Or should I let it go? My nine-year-old daughter said, I'd let it go, Dad. You haven't been yourself recently. So that tape was like water on the desert. And I saw a bigger picture. And I saw my old paradigm of being the only man that can save Western civilization (laughs) as flawed. (laughs) Unlimited. Do you think that Richard Bach book was uh, pivotal for you, Trevor and Jen? <laughs> we read it at a pivotal time in our relationship. I think we were rapidly becoming closer during that time. Um, I think that he reflected in organized a lot of thoughts that were swimming around in my brain already. Um, and he has a very elegant way and poetic way that I wouldn't necessarily say I have of writing out these ideas. And mm-hmm. There's something very validating about hearing your ideas spit back at you in, in a beautiful way. You're just like, yeah, I knew that made sense this whole time. Um, so, yeah, in that way, I'd say it's... Very cool. And I can see that uh, at the just the right time in the relationship, how that could be fuel for the fire. 
Yeah, and the whole like his whole it's the, it's at least the first book we read is him sort of wondering why he hasn't found and how he should find his soulmate, and then the next book was about them being together or sort of coming to be together, and then the third book that we read, so we did a whole series by him, um, was them after becoming comfortable with one another. Um, they both have sort of slightly different variations on the themes of oneness. And, mm-hmm. um, the last one is literally called One. Yeah. So did they co-write it? <clears throat> yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, so you see that. And then it was written in like real time too. So my understanding yeah. is it's correct. So you you see the literal Going evolution of their journeys. relationships. Which and is, the evolution of, well, I feel like him especially. Yeah, he sort of starts off a little bit differently than he is in the end of even the first book, but even more so by the end of one. Yeah, I feel like he's pretty pretty transformed. Honestly. I mean, like maybe some of those same ideas, but basically a completely different person from more well-rounded. Yes, I mean he just had so many shields up and uh, ideas keeping him from possibilities of of growth and expansion especially uh being spurred on by another person or the idea of growing with another person he was it started off as cynical and closed off to that then you can really see even like just the evolution of his writing as he as he expands from the power of love (laughs) He does it also beautifully. It really are. It's a great, great, great couple of books. So, what's the name of his last book? I mean, the last book that we're referring to is one. Okay. The most recent book that he's written. I don't know. The last book of his that I bought yeah. was called "The Adventures of the or The Adventures of the Ferret Chronicles." <laughs> but but it's not about love. Yeah, and that one's... was before all these books you're referring to. Right? No, this is uh, this is the most recent. Oh, one that I I've, see. But okay. I've read this most, but I think he's had one or two since that one. Even he yeah. he, he puts out a decent amount. Yeah. That was illusions, the bridge across forever, and one one. One's really fascinating, but it takes like um, they go through alternate. Space universes and realities and they they learn something about themselves and the world in each one um but it's basically the moral of the story is that we're all one and they're learning that lesson in many different ways over but the the way that that lesson is continually reinforced in a new way and how it all sort of revolves around this central theme it's just it's so beautifully done that and they go back, they talk to Genghis Khan, like, how can I relate to this person? And they come out of being like, yeah, there's elements of me that are reflected in even these sort of very varying. But it's so much more than that. It's, you should read the book. Great. Good stuff. Sounds, sounds uh, like it really moved you. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. My favorite one is when they, when they, I think at least one I've talked about most is they go back and they there's this uh, great writer of a religious text like the Bible. I'm not sure exactly which one it is. And I don't think it's supposed to be any specific one. It's supposed to be generic or something we don't know about. 
But they have this whole conversation about what it means to have a moral truth. So you take this moral truth, you write it down. This is, should be how people should live. And it's basically lessons that you feel very passionate about that you, you know in your heart is right and that other people should follow. And what do you do from there? Do you do you protect it? Do you protect it with your life? Do you protect it with other people's lives? And you maybe have to kill to protect these words that you create a society around them and, and pass them down. And then if so, who who makes sure that the word isn't being altered or changed for somebody? That, uh, and it raises all these questions and, and answers a lot of them. Really, I, comes to a conclusion at the end about the best way to go forward in such a that I think is uh, pretty wise. One of the points is that a lot of these truths that you might be able to consider self-evident are, are only going to be heard by those that already know it. So putting a whole bunch of energy into preaching it is not necessarily the best way to go. And and, and the organization that goes behind preaching it of, Right. It's it's kind of a waste of time and energy because the only people that are going to hear you are the ones that already understand it. Oh, that was a very interesting take on it. It reminds me of the Quakers who believe that each person has that voice of God within and that they each person is their own best expert at what that voice says and and what the uh, heart tells them is right or true and therefore there aren't any preachers or clerics in the uh, friends in the Quakers. And they accept everyone because everyone is their own expert on, on God, their God, the God that speaks within them. And I thought, man, that is really evolved. I feel like I don't know much about the Quakers, but I've never heard something that I was like, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> like, I have absolutely no complaints. They, they seem to have their ideas well organized. Fantastic oatmeal cookies. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> there was this um, speaker about Quakerism that uh, I listened to in conjunction with a course I was taking. And she said that her son was in um, Abington Friends School. And he was in the middle school. And he took to uh, uh, letting his hair grow long and he wore some dark glasses. And then he began wearing these T-shirts that had uh, heavy metal imagery on them and sort of uh, violent images and uh, he's wearing these this outfit and this uh, presentation to a Quaker school who have um, who have minutes they call uh, uh, treaties on peace 
So eventually the headmaster called him in to talk about this. And so he went in to see the headmaster and he's got his regalia on the one-way sunglasses and the violent t-shirt. And uh, the headmaster says, uh, I'm really interested in what you think about with your ensemble here, your, uh, where you're presenting yourself. What are your thoughts about that? And the kid says, well, there are some boys in this school, in this Quaker school, that have been bullying me. And when I wear this outfit, they keep their distance. The headmaster says, that's very smart, very resourceful. I'm impressed. So what do you think about the imagery, this violent imagery that you're wearing uh, in juxtaposition with our position on peace here in Quakerism in the school? So they talked a long time, back and forth about it. And when the boy emerged from the headmaster's office, he decided that he would wear the outfit, but he would turn the T-shirt inside out. So he still looked a little square, a little scary. I guess to the bullies, he became a little unpredictable, you know, and... Uh, if he's going to look like that, uh, maybe we better not poke the bear, you know. <laughs> but I thought that was such a wise way to proceed. The only thing I've heard even better than that is about the Babembe village. The Babembe people live in uh, South Africa. They're very... Uh, close to the earth, their huts are made of the materials that grow around them. They have no appliances, no running water, no electricity. They have a village on top of the hill. Down at the bottom of the hill, there's a river. And one day, a little boy who was skipping stones on the river um, made his record of seven skips for one stone on the surface of the river, and he was only seven years old. Later, he was up in the village, and no one seemed to be in the village, and he found this river rock in the center of the village just laying there in the dirt. He thought maybe someone must have dropped it because obviously it was a river rock. It was smooth and had been tumbled by that river. And he picked up the rock and he thought he would throw it over the roof of the distant houses in the village, just on the other side, actually. But even better, he would throw that rock over the trees in back of the huts. Even better than that, he would throw the rock to the sky because this rock laid so perfectly on his hand. 
it had a rounded edge. He could hook his forefinger around it, and he knew he could throw this rock to the sky. It had that magical feel to it. So he hauled back and he threw it with the most strength that he could muster. But if you throw a rock as hard as you can, you lose control, and that rock can go wild. And that rock hit the water jug of the grandmother and shattered it. Now, that water jug was an icon in the village. The young women would tip their water jugs into that water jug belonging to the grandmother because she was too old to carry the water up from the river. So out of honor to the woman who had done the work of the world, they tipped their water, filled up the water jug every day. But now, Tolo, this boy, had had busted that jug. He was horrified, so he ran from the village. He ran out into the jungle and he hid there all day until the sun started to set. He snuck back in the village from the far end and he got a cup from his hut went to the pot of soup that was simmering in the middle of the village on the fire. He dipped his cup in there, stole back to his hut with his supper, And for three days, he stayed away from the village during the day, hoping that people would forget all about this broken jug. Hopefully no one had seen him. But someone did see him. It was the grandfather behind Tolo. When he threw that rock, he saw the rock go right into that jug and bust it. So he'd given Tolo three days to own up to this. But after the third day, when the little boy did not confess to this mistake, he called for a circle of appreciation. Now this circle is the conflict resolution device, probably the most advanced on the planet even though these people are very humble. They have the most brilliant conflict resolution system, I believe, in the whole world. For everybody stops working and playing and sits in this circle, and in the center of the circle sat the little boy. And one by one, each villager told something they appreciated about Tolo, about this little boy. Some people said that they liked his laugh. Other people said they liked the fact that he was such a willing worker in the fields. Even at seven, he would carry big bundles of wheat back at harvest time. Another boy remembered the time they were walking in the forest. They lost their way, and Tolo, at seven years of age, climbed the highest tree. And because he was so little and white, He could get up above the canopy, see where the village was. He pointed, and the two boys found their way back home. They were heading off in the wrong direction. One by one, each of the villagers told Tolo what they liked about him. And at the end of it, Tolo remembered who he was. He was a loved boy. He had a big heart. 
He was a willing worker. He had a great life. And the village remembered who Tolo was, the seven-year-old boy, who was a gem, a treasure to the village. And no one blamed him for breaking the jug. No one even brought it up. No one judged him. They all appreciated him. And at the end of it, Tolo said, Grandma, I'm sorry I broke your jug. I didn't mean to. It was a mistake. I was scared. I ran from the village. I hope no one saw me. But now I wish I could make you a new jug, but I don't know how. And the boy who had been helped by Tolo, who had seen Tolo climb the tree and direct them back to the village, he says, Tolo, I know how to make a jug. Let's make one together. We'll get the children of the village, you included, to make the designs on the jug for our grandma. And that was how the Babemba people solved the problem. Because everyone was richer for it, richer for the mistake. And the village was stronger and more cohesive because they had appreciated one of their number and recalled who each other really were. That was amazing. Yes, I liked it a lot. We'll have to have that be a tenant of our community, but also remember to integrate that at any opportunity possible. I think that's, yeah, in general, probably the best defense mechanism in the world. If you ever get mad at somebody, tell them something, your favorite thing about them. Yeah, that certainly works in relationships. You know, with your mate. Sometimes I tell Bonnie that I love her to remind myself <laughs> <laughs> that there are larger, more rewarding way things in life than to have my way. You know, what life practices do you do to keep yourself sane and balanced? I had a milkshake today. Mm, that's a great life practice. <laughs> That's a treat that I uh, gave myself. I uh, like the community, the spiritual community I go to once a week. It's Pebble Hill Church. It's a church that's an interfaith church. So it practices all the, most of the traditions of the world. And I like that. I like that uh, vision of inclusion and learning about what matters to other cultures. That's really cool. Yeah. 